Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Man, you guys all look so wonderful. This happened years ago. We had a Halloween ended up on a Wednesday service. Stephanie was speaking and you had that, where are you? That Carmen San Diego costume. It was like bright red and the big hat. Man, the thing was awesome. Uh, you, everybody, looking, looking excellent. Uh, yeah, we are in well into a sermon series on the crucifixion now. Um, so we're going to keep going with that. We got uh, Enduring Letter Writing, or The Buddha's Honest Truth and More, or That's a Crucifixion! Movie small group people, all, 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 or what, what's that movie called? On the Waterfront. I was thinking All Quiet on the Western Front. Or An Eternal Wait Between Me and Nevertheless. There's a funny story in John chapter 4 uh, where Jesus has just finished talking to a woman about her sultry past. Uh, knowing way more about her illicit extramarital life than any normal person would have a right to know. And after Jesus points out uh, a detail or two that she was sure had been really kept totally secret, uh, he calls her to worship God in spirit and in truth. Her response (coughs) is to call him the Messiah and then run off and tell the same to anybody who would listen. The crowds come. Uh, Some probably because they seek the Messiah, but a lot more probably because they like a good gossip. And in the middle of all the hubbub, Jesus' disciples, they they think he's looking a little peaked. So they tell him, Rabbi, you should eat something. Really takes it out of you, you know, knowing others' deepest secrets. Jesus says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they... Naturally, take that to mean that he's got, like, a secret snack stash somewhere. So they ask him, like, where is he getting this mystery food from? And Jesus says, my food is to do the work of him who sent me. It's funny because it's classic Jesus saying something, like, weirdly spiritual and very cryptic sounding to his apparently bumbling disciples who, once again, just, they don't get it. But it's also curious because there's something about his tone here that seems at odds, slightly at odds at least, with the Jesus that we find at the end of his ministry in the Garden of Gethsemane. So in John 4, we get, my food is to do the work of him who sent me. And in Luke 22, we get, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The story from John 4 makes it sound like Jesus just went around doing the will of the Father as readily and as naturally as a man eats bread. Like Jesus seemed to feel, excuse me, not just just fine, but really like very obvious and just matter of fact about doing the will of God. Like, yeah, it's just, that's what I do. It's what I live on. He wanted to bring up doing the will of God even when no one else was even trying to talk about anything spiritual at all. Like they're just trying to get him a snack and he's like, talking about doing the will of God. But the story at the end of Luke and Gethsemane, it sounds like Jesus really struggled to do or even to want to do the will of the Father. Yes, as we know, he came around, he gave in, he moved from remove this cup from me to nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. In fact, it's the very next sentence. But I wonder... When we read this, are you, I don't know if you're like me. When you read this or when you read 
any scripture? Like, do you tend to read right through from one sentence to the next as if Jesus is just like rehearsing uh, like a monologue off of a, off of a script? Like, there's no sense of time sometimes when I read the Bible. It's like everything's just kind of happening, you know, at a clip like this. But I wonder how much time passed and what kind of agony did he experience between saying, remove this cup from me, period, and then nevertheless? Like, how long between the period and the capital letter? What happens when the will that we are so eager to do leads us to the suffering of the cross? Or should we say, when it leads us through the suffering of the cross? What happens when the will of the Father doesn't feel like it's going to nourish us like bread, uh, but when we are convinced that it's actually going to kill us like a crucifixion? Especially when it's a will that's not forced upon you, but it's something that we are asked to walk into the way that Jesus walked into his crucifixion. I'm going to talk about my dad. And I want to say that my father and I are getting along better than we ever have uh, now that I'm 37, and I don't want to slander him. My siblings and I, we had a really tough time growing up in his house, but God knows that he had a much worse time growing up in the house with my grandfather, so I want to be gracious to him. I was having a conversation with my mom a few years ago, uh, and she, we were talking about some of the worst, darkest parts of my dad and growing up and his past, uh, and she said, I think your dad was just doing the best he could. And honestly, like, I was kind of offended by that. Uh, but I also wanted to believe her. But also, honestly, there are still some times that I doubt it. So I want to be gracious here when I talk about this. Um, but I also want to be honest. It was always very hard to get along with him at home. Uh, he made us, he made me, I have three siblings, the four of us. He made us feel small in ways that were manipulative and hard to defend against when you're a child. Like, he would say things that would leave a third grader wondering if, like, really he was right. He always affirmed how capable we were. He never just outright called us worthless, but he constantly reminded us that uh, if we were capable of doing or achieving something, like straight A's, say, and then we didn't do it, it was either because we were stupid or lazy. You're smart enough somehow became like a put-down coming from him. <clears throat> Uh, we weren't allowed to be foolish. We were asked constantly, is that the best you can do? A question for which there is no answer that can yield any kind of confidence or security. And again, God knows that my dad received much, much worse from his dad. And God also knows that I'm no saint with my own boys. So I want to be gracious. But the way that he spoke made it feel hard uh, to trust him. It made me feel like I could not be safe or trust him. Uh, and in time, I came to not want very much from him at all. And when I left for college, when I was where you are now, uh, I was eager to leave him as in the past as I could get him. And I thought, this is the perfect opportunity, moving away from home, starting my own life, uh, remove this cup from me. But beginning my freshman year, uh, back in 2003, the Spirit spoke a different word to me. And over Thanksgiving break, on a van ride to Cincinnati, Ohio, with CCF for the National Missionary Convention, thanks, Keeve and Stephanie, for taking us, uh, while listening to The Beautiful Letdown by Switchfoot, 
their new album that year. Yes, great album. An idea came to me. One of those ideas that comes from nowhere uh, and also refuses to return to nowhere. You know what I'm talking about? The idea was to write my dad a letter, which is to say to not let my dad go or leave him as in the past as I could get him. And I realize now that this word has actually been my constant companion for the past 18 years. Ask Derek and Keevan, how many times have I said again, I gotta make a phone call, I gotta write a letter, I gotta reach back out, nevertheless, not my will. I wrote the first letter before Christmas break. I told him how I imagined things must have been rough for him, having just lost yet another job, common theme of his life. Uh, having children who were angry with him. I'm the youngest. My other siblings had moved out. They were on rough terms. And I told him that while I was angry too, you're still my dad. And I wanted to let him know that no matter what his job situation or family situation, I loved him and I respected him and I still wanted him to stay my dad. I gave him that letter my first day home from Truman over Christmas break. All the break went by, nothing said. Until the day before coming back to Truman in January, when that afternoon I'm walking through the living room where my dad is sitting watching TV in his big leather chair, and he stopped me and he said, Pete, my dad always calls me Pete, he's always called me Pete since the day I was born, asked me about it later. He said, Pete, I read your letter, and I just want you to know I don't care what anyone thinks of me. Oof. I determined I was never reaching out like that again. Remove this cup from me. In 2012, my parents divorced after 38 years. It was a mess. We were all angry at my father for how he had treated my mother. And again, I want to be gracious. Relationships are complicated. Often, pretty much always, both parties have something to own. But he said some things to my mom, and things came to light that made my brothers and my sister and me very angry. And so all of us resolved just not to talk to him again, ever. Now, uh, with less reason to, since my mom had mostly been the tie holding us together, and now that that had been severed, we didn't really have the obligation. <clears throat> so, I figured I'd really leave him in the past this time. Remove this cup from me. Two of my siblings have said almost nothing to my father in nine years. I spent a full year, 12 months, not talking to him at all. I wrote him a letter, constant theme, uh, at the beginning of that time, telling him what we needed from him, that we needed real remorse and real repentance. And if these relationships were going to continue, uh, it was going to take that. And so nothing else was worth talking about until he was ready to talk about that and he could let me know when that was. And I stuck with it, and so did he. And through that whole year, I talked to my accountability group, Keeve, Derek, Trush, uh, all about it. And they patiently bore with me and my judgmental, hardening heart. My mom came to visit after it had been nearly a year uh, since I'd spoken to him, and I told her what I was feeling and what I had decided, <clears throat> what I wanted. She said, sweetie, I know what you want, and it's right of you to want it, but I don't think you're ever going to get it. I don't know if your father is capable of giving it to you. So not long after that, uh, one night, I suddenly woke up in the middle of the night with one thought, again, intruding, like a lightning bolt shooting into my brain. Today is the day you need to call your father. I said I would call him in the morning. I went back to sleep. Nevertheless, not my will. I woke up to a voicemail from my dad, the first call in a year, 
saying my grandmother had passed away that night. We started talking again. We struck an uneasy balance. And I've spent enough time still wanting to leave him as far in the past as I could. This is not a story about how I have developed into some kind of a saint. Uh, it just, it requires too much energy to work up to that phone call, too much stress from the guilt over not doing things right, to walk into and endure the suffering set before me with him just didn't seem like it could possibly be worth anything. Remove this cup from me. Last year at Father's Day, we spent the weekend with our best friends from our Truman days, the Bradleys in Kansas City. Keith Bradley, one of the 50 most powerful people in Kansas City. I woke up that Sunday, of course, dreading the thought of my own father. Father's, I don't know if anybody has rough times with your fathers, but Father's Day can be rough when that is the case. <coughs> especially when you feel like there are all those expectations. Uh, and so I woke up struggling again with the guilt of not having a great card or a great gift to send him uh, on time. And a different idea bolted into my brain, and these ideas just kept coming. I knew I needed to be better at staying in regular touch with him, but I didn't know how. I'm a bad phone talker. I'm an especially bad phone talker when I don't want to talk to you in the first place. But I love movies. My dad loves westerns. I hadn't seen any Westerns. So my gift from this lightning bolt, I curated a list of 12 films, and I gave it to him with a promise. We'll watch one movie a month, and as the tie that will bind us, and as, it, as our accountability, I will make a phone call every month to discuss the movie. Nevertheless, not my will. The phone calls happened. We talked about more than Westerns. We talked and we argued about life and about racism and about family and about lots of things. And I made it seven months in movies before I lost the habit, but rather than lose the phone calls, they actually increased. We talk twice a month now, every other Monday from 8 to 9 a.m. Is it perfect? No. Are all the wounds gone? No. But it is as good as it's ever been because the Lord kept pushing me, and I kept against my... I, I was kicking and screaming, but okay. I'll endure this for now. And it's been a long while now since I've prayed anything like, remove this cup from me, as far as he's concerned. Nevertheless, not my will. I've never been crucified. Has anybody in this room ever been crucified? Take your silence as a no. I have endured hardship. Anybody ever here endured hardship before? Yes. People with broken families have. People trying their best to make churches thrive have. People who just have children at all. <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> people who have jobs that are meaningless. People who have jobs that are so meaningful that it feels like the world is hanging in the balance. How do we push on through these things and to what end? How do we get from remove this cup to nevertheless? And is there anything on the other side? Or is the Christian life just about suffering for its own sake, for piety and obedience? Is that what it means to have the cross at the center of our faith? We can't speak about the cross without saying something about suffering. I mean, that's what crucifixions were all about, after all. <clears throat> Instruments designed with intent, <clears throat> excuse me, specifically to inflict as much suffering as a person could take be final, before they finally breathe their last, and not only suffering, but shame. Fleming Rutledge, she wrote of how the purpose of a Roman cross was to heap massive pain 
and shame upon the victim, eradicating not only their life, but any sense of their humanity and dignity in the process. This is what Jesus endured. Fleming references a television series in this book she wrote. Uh, she references a television series from the 80s uh, from PBS called The Christians. And the narrator says, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its, as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. Is that true? Is that the focus? Should it be? Is the suffering the central focus? It's definitely an essential element, but we have to be careful because there's a tendency in Christianity to glorify suffering, to make it a noble end in itself, as if God loved it and really wanted us to suffer, as if the gospel truth is the same as the Buddhist truth, that life is suffering, which, by the way, is true in its own way, if I understand him correctly. There's a line about the crucifixion that I've been reading and it'll mess with you if you sit with it long enough. From Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, the relationships, the churches, the jobs, the meaninglessness that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him he endured the cross, the writer of Hebrews says. Not for the life lesson that was set before him or the wisdom that was set before him or the duty that was set before him or the character growth that was set before him did he endure the cross for the joy. The crucifixion happens on the way to something, someone once said. And not just a negative something. The cross is not just a negation of sin. It's not just a no. Its purpose is not just to remove something. It is God's substantial yes to something, namely to joy, to transcendent joy. Is life one long ordeal of suffering, of loss, with just pinpricks of happy relief here and there? Or is it begun and ended and carried along in joy with suffering to be endured along the way, to be sure? This is what Jesus was kind of talking about when he talked about the good eye and the bad eye. And if your eye is bad, then your body is full of darkness. But if your eye is full of light, then how much more? He's talking about this fundamental way of seeing the world. <clears throat> so while we cannot speak of the cross without speaking of suffering, I think we dare not speak of the cross without speaking about joy. The cross without suffering, it's a self-help expert on Oprah. It leads to self-indulgence and pride. The cross without joy, it's just a soldier marching off to war, just following orders to the death, and it leads to bitterness and pride. To remove either suffering or joy from the cross is to take away its power. Because check this out. Jesus' suffering speaks to the power that God's rescue of us really cost him something. And that he really does enter into the midst of our deepest sufferings. But Jesus' joy 
for which he endured the cross speaks to the power of God's love for us. God's laughing, crying, wrap the prodigal son in the biggest hug you have ever imagined kind of love for us. He didn't endure the cross out of duty or obligation. His love for you is not begrudging. It was sheer joy for him to love you, and it is. It is sheer joy for him to bring you home whatever it cost. We shouldn't chase suffering. Really, we don't have to. If we follow in the way of Jesus, which is to say if we love our enemies and our friends and our dads and our children and our strangers and our churches as he loves us, if we do it in that way, it'll come. It's because of this. If, if you stick by another closely enough, sooner or later, it's going to cost you. It will cost you the suffering, the pain of showing mercy and grace. It will cost you the suffering of forgiveness It'll cost you the suffering of seeking the one who is running away from you. Suffering in this world is so inevitably a part of genuine love that the two are basically inseparable. Frederick Buechner, sorry, said, to suffer in love for another's suffering is to live life not only at its fullest but at its holiest. There's another line at the end of this Hebrews chapter that'll mess you with you if you sit with it long enough. You have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You guys know the story of Abel and Cain? What word did the blood of Abel speak? What better word does the blood of Jesus speak? Abel was murdered by his brother Cain, so the story in Genesis tells us. And when God confronts Cain, he says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What's it crying for? Might call it justice, but only if we mean our particular American brand of justice, that kind of justice that's about punishment, about getting even, about getting what one deserves. That's the kind of justice that it's crying out for. The blood of Abel is the word of vengeance. That's why Cain is so afraid. God tells Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And Cain is so afraid. Specifically, he says that somebody is going to murder him now. Somebody's going to come back and give him what he deserves. The joy set before Jesus, the joy for which he endured the cross, is the joy of, here's a Hebrew word for you, shalom. That is his joy. And it's a Hebrew way of saying peace, which isn't so much the peace of being like in an unbotherable, zen-like state. That's not the peace we're talking about. But the peace of a father and a son being able for the first time in 37 years to share their lives with one another, to speak to one another, to see one another for who they are, to come to the table without anxiety or fear. Shalom is the peace of everything being where the joy intended for it to be in the first place. Everything being in the right place. The word of the blood of Abel, the word of vengeance, of those who hurt us getting what they deserve because God knows they deserve it, that can never bring about this kind of peace.
And so it can never bring about joy in the heart of God. And so the cross is not about vengeance. It is not about anyone getting what they deserve. The word of the blood of Jesus is the word of mercy. You guys were there Wednesday for Polly. Holy cow. I mean, my goodness. I don't know if you know, like, how rare and amazing that kind of a thing is. And we get it here at CCF with, I mean, not, I mean the testimonies and all of it, like, I love it so much. But sorry to everybody else and to myself. Like, Polly, that was, that was amazing. That was masterful. Really? Uh, yes, please. So Polly talked about mercy. Uh, and, and he said that mercy is withholding the consequence that someone might deserve from us. And the word of the blood of Jesus is also the word of grace, which he said is giving the gift that they don't deserve from us. It is the word of suffering and love for the suffering of another, as Beekner said. And it is the only way to settle accounts without destroying us. And so, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He sat down at the right hand of the Father for the joy set before us, we can endure our own crosses for the joy of peace, of everything being set back in its right place. The cross in the end is God's ultimate affirmation that though we make ourselves God's enemies, he will not make himself ours. It is his once for all whisper or shout to us who are both his enemies and his beloved I would rather die than kill you. And it is joy. It is deep, transcendent joy. Let me say again, God did not suffer for you. He does not suffer with you begrudgingly. It is his joy. He doesn't welcome you in with his hands tied behind his back as if like his mercy barely won an arm wrestling match with his justice. It is his joy to love you and welcome you and suffer in love with you and for you in your suffering. And so now, may we who endure the suffering of trying to speak the word of mercy into broken relationships, it is hard work, God knows. May we lift up our eyes to Jesus on the cross. Those who may someday have to endure the suffering of working it out with an unfaithful spouse and then endure the suffering of the unfaithful spouse who leaves in the end anyway, may we lift our eyes to the cross. And those who may someday have to endure the suffering of having and raising and even losing children, may we lift our eyes to the cross. And those who may someday have to endure the suffering of work that puts them up close with the world's deep wounds in the effort to heal, may we lift up our eyes to the cross. Those who may someday have to endure the suffering of strife and fracture in churches and relationships, may we lift our eyes to the cross. And those who have to endure whatever suffering that comes with following in the way of the slain lamb, may we look to Jesus on the cross and may we see a glimpse of the joy that is now and eternally and forever his because of that cross. Amen.